You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Doug and Greg Stokes, Lanyap Podcast. It is nearing the end of August here. Uh, hurricane season in New Orleans is ramping up. Uh, we've been spared to date, and hopefully that continues for the remainder of this season. Uh, although it's extremely hot outside, um, going to hit 100 degrees this weekend. Um, in terms of what's going on in markets uh, this week, it's Jackson Hole with the Federal Reserve. So all the, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, board members and chairperson Jerome Powell are going to be out on the in the Mountain West this week discussing interest rate policy. Uh, Powell spoke today, uh, and his quote from today is this, it's the Fed's job to bring inflation down to our 2% goal, and we will do so. We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving substantially down. Inflation's at 3%. Um, they're trying to get it to 2%. Uh, Truflation says we're at 2.56% as of today. What are your thoughts, Greg, on the uh, the battle that the Federal Reserve is having with inflation and more restrictive policy to come? What the market is telling us, Doug, is that there's one more rate hike in, hold for, in store for us in November. And then at that point in time, then conceivably, the, um, the, the Fed should either pause or begin cutting rates. I'd be interested to see what happens. But Ultimately, if you look back at history, when the Fed is actually done raising rates, it cuts usually shortly thereafter because usually they raise until something breaks. If I if I look at the traje- trajectory of inflation right now, it's certainly coming down. I think that's a trend that's only going to continue as uh, housing data matriculates through the Fed's uh, calculus. So I'd be surprised really if we get more than one rate hike. And that's kind of what the Fed was explaining um, during their speech today. The markets initially sold off when uh, uh, Jay Powell spoke, and then right now it's kind of recovered. So we'll, it'll, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think we're certainly um, nearing the end of this particular cycle. And I'm glad um, that we are as well, too, because it's been the driver of a lot of market action in a negative way. And, um, and it's really been, it's been two years, really, since we've had a new market high, which is a long period of time. I was thinking about... Um this speaking of just a couple of years ago, this is from August 27th, 2020. So three years ago, the fed strategy changed, acknowledging a new environment. And, uh, what happened three years ago, the fed changed its language on inflation, replacing its 2% inflation target commitment with instead, it will seek to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time. The issue back then was that there wasn't enough inflation. There was concerns about, um, you know, deflation or below trend inflation. So below 2%. So they're going to be easy on monetary policy uh, until it got above 2% and stayed there for a period of time. And it's so funny that all of a sudden they're changing their tune that they have to get back to that 2% target when they're really what the market is telling us is that, uh, we're sort of in that two and a half percent range right now. Why do we need to, to push further, um, and, and get a, a lot more restrictive, uh, just to get from you know three or two and a half percent to two uh, percent, it seems a little bit silly to me, which makes me sort of think that uh, 
it's just sort of ridiculous that we have these people that um, it's a board of I think it's twelve that are that are you know, dictating monetary policy uh, for the entire country. You know what but, surprised um, me is that given the fact that they've raised rates from zero percent to five per five and a half percent or wherever it's at right now, that the economy has really held up and shrugged all of this off. Now there could be like a impending um, decline in housing prices, which really wouldn't surprise me where uh, mortgage rates are right now. But other than that, things things seem to have, be chug, chugging quite ch- chugging along quite well, which is really what the markets responded to. I mean, the, the concern was is that we were teetering on the edge of a recession. I think that at one point in time in 2022, the sur- there there was a survey done of S and P 500 CEOs, and something like 98 percent of them at that point in time thought there was going to be a recession. Um, it really has surprised me what's taking place and that there hasn't been one so far, but I really, I, I realistically don't see the housing market really moving a whole lot given where inflation rates are right now. And that's a big driver, uh, pardon me, where interest rates are right now. And that's a big driver of the economy, as you know. I think, I think it's going to be, it's, that's a, t- a time, uh, you know, interest rates at a certain level for a certain period of time. And if that time is extended, we're going to see some issues. This is from, uh, regions, uh, regions, financial corporations, basically regions bank, uh, their chief economist, Richard Moody, he's saying that there is still pent up demand for home purchases is seen in how little time homes spend on the market. Once listed NAR reports that 74% of homes sold in July were on the market less than a month before going under contract. While the median days on the market metric rose to 20 days in July from 18 days in June, that still leaves it well below pre-pandemic norms. Um, and then he, he goes on to say, all cash sales have accounted for 26% of all existing home sales in July. And thus far in 2023, 27% of sales up, uh, up two percentage points from 2022. Uh, yeah, so people are not taking mortgages out at 7.5%. And then he says, though many have been surprised that house prices have not fallen sharply as higher mortgage rates have risen, we've maintained that limited inventories coupled with pent-up demand would mitigate downward pressures on prices. While that, of course, could change, it's unlikely to change anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I think as your your marginal all-cash buyer goes away and people need to uh, utilize mortgages for home purchases and if inventory comes back up because, let's say, unemployment comes up, people have to move. Other expenses increase, uh, and so people have to sell their house. That uh, that likely could change, but I think it's that's a time component, and not necessarily where we are uh, at this point in time. If interest rates just stay higher for the next twelve months, I think it would be a, a major uh, impact on on home prices. And in speak, speaking of mortgage rates, uh, they just ha- I think they just have to come down to to spur buyers that are that are not all cash buyers. Um, I looked back and I saw, uh, so first of all, the, the 10 year treasury at 4.2% is the highest it's been since October of 2007. I look back, uh, in October of 2007, what was the 30 year mortgage rate? It was about six and a half percent, almost a full percentage point less than where 30 year mortgage rates are right now. And so the spreads between the treasury rates and mortgage rates are extremely high and, uh, treasury rates are high, um, just on their own. So the combination of those two, it's just, it's impossible to imagine that somebody putting 20% down on a home uh, is going to be able to afford it in this environment. 
You know what's crazy to me is that all of the, like the home builder stocks are like at all time highs or near all time highs. I'm looking at Dr. Horton right now. It is basically at an all time high or was last week. Same thing goes with Lennar Holdings. There's an S. There's an S and P um, home builders ETF, which is a um, it, it tracks basically all these type of companies, including like companies that make uh, air conditioning units like Carrier Global, etc. Also at an all time high. Um, it's I, I don't think anybody would have seen this coming last year, especially if you'd have looked at um, the the interest rate story and and whether or not if if there is some interest rates mortgage interest rates are static, then conceivably this doesn't hold up. But it really is, has really bucked the trend of the narrative of the the fact that there there really hasn't been that much of a slowdown in the in the um, housing yeah. industry. Well, well, Richard Moody actually addresses that, and he and he and he says in this uh, this white paper, mounting frustrations over limited inventories have steered increasing numbers of prospective buyers to the market for new homes. This is an existing homes report, where many builders have been able to use rate buy downs as a means of facilitating sales. So basically, they're just decreasing their margins on the sale by saying, "We'll we'll buy a point or two down on your mortgage if you if you buy this home." Uh, and, and that's essentially what's been happening. So, you know, your, your person that's selling an existing home, uh, first of all, they're not selling because their rate is already super low. Uh, but if they do sell the, they're competing against these builders that have the ability to, uh, sort of structure a sale in which the rate paid is, uh, substantially lower than the stated mortgage rate through rate buy downs. Yeah. So interesting times in the housing market and the, the whole, one of the reasons what, that I've heard uh, people have been incentivized to buy houses is that th- they're under the impression that they can buy and deal with these high rates now and refinance later. Um, and if rates stay where they are, really, which is they've been kind of in this ballpark for the last year and a half at least, then that could um, really cause some pain for people. Um, shifting gears to sort of a more of a global type of issue, there was a about six or eight weeks ago, this this whole um, Russia mutiny took place, where this guy, who is Putin's former chef, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, led a column of like ten thousand uh, of the Wagner mercenary group from the Ukraine to Russia and took over a Russian city. Um, Putin, at that point in time, uh, told uh, the media, and this there was an agreement between. Um, Putin and Prigozhin uh, that was facilitated by the president of Belarus that um, Prigozhin would be forgiven, et cetera, if he turned around. Uh, yesterday or two days ago, um, Prigozhin's plane mysteriously fell out of the sky in Russia. So uh, I guess all was not forgiven. Um, but another yeah, interesting a, term. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just uh, incredibly surprising events occurring in Russia. If uh, if you followed uh, uh, P- Putin at all over the last twenty years, I don't think he's one to keep uh, mutinous around, and uh, I think he he proved that again with uh, with this guy. There's been there's a sort of a running joke with uh, disaffected Russian politicians or generals or whatever that to stay away from open windows because that's been a common theme with these Russian generals that'll fall out of a hospital window or whatever mysteriously. Um, but that was the same, the same sort of warnings were provided to this guy Prigozhin and, um, the sort of hen came home to roost for him. And, 
it makes me think that we're very fortunate to live in a stable um, co- country, even though we have our problems. Obviously, it's this is just it's a wild world out there, as proven by this individual and the just the dynamics that exist in that particular country or in, in most countries in the in the world. Yeah. Um, coming back, I want to I want to finish this episode off with uh, with it, it'll be a long segment, but uh, Jonathan Clements, who writes a, a blog called Humble Dollar wrote uh over the weekend a a piece called financial superpowers i don't there's seven of them and i want to go through uh as many as we can uh, before time's up but i think it's really good he he says the first superpower and i think this is absolutely correct is greater humility the larger financial world as well as our own financial life are rife with uncertainty Think about all of the unknowns, market meltdowns, job losses, ill health, home repairs, family tragedies. The list goes on. There's a reason this site is called Humble Dollar. We should humbly accept that there's about as much in the financial world that's unknowable and that we can't control. I'll add to this that everything that is known or written about, the market knows as well. And so there's no real insight that anybody has um, that is not at least baked into prices. And I think that that's... uh, Understanding that is sort of uh, one of the first principles in in markets. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about talked about this at length with amongst ourselves on the podcast with clients, etc. There's a saying that market is the market is the truth. Um, and when we ha- and when people ask us for the, our our prognostication on the impact of some geopolitical event on the markets. Our response is, is that that's all baked into the price of securities, meaning all of the available knowledge um, in the, in humanity is priced into to, uh, the stocks, bonds, et cetera, any sort of asset prices. Really, it's re- what I what I find interesting about markets, and I love all types of markets, but the stock market in particular is it's the best snapshot, the best up to date, real time snapshot of human psychology and the humans uh, pricing of risk essentially and reward and greed and fear that you can see on a daily basis and I think there's certainly a um, an ounce of humility that needs to come with being a participant in the market because there's really no um, unless unless you had some information that wasn't public which is illegal if you're just a regular market participant with with the competition that that exists in the marketplace with your, you're dealing with the smartest people in the world that are trying to make money on one particular side or the other. You, you need to have an ounce of humility in dealing with the, the efficiency of the market and the market participants that, that are trying to make money on all sides of the equation. Yeah. And I think the market is there. I think a, a, a purely efficient market is, um, unrealistic. And so there are inefficiencies in the market that some people exploit, but the, the idea that there, that, Number one, we're going to be those people that are, or anybody else that you know, we know are going to be the one person on earth to exploit that inefficiency is uh, sort of the that's a the that's a, not an exercise in humility. Uh, the other side is that it's pretty damn efficient, and so uh, we have enough evidence going back uh, at least a hundred years to understand what works and what doesn't work in markets, and utilizing that versus. Um, sort of some crystal ball forecasting technique is is probably a better way to approach things. The next uh, I want to talk about these two go hand in hand. Um, number number his number four and number five. Um, 
longer your time horizon, number four, and and have a higher risk tolerance. Those are two financial superpowers. And I, and I would agree with both of those. Uh, Greg, thoughts on length and time horizon and and increasing risk tolerance? I think that's really a way to, if you the market is so efficient, the way to really arbitra- get any sort of real arbitrage against the, the participants in the market is to be able to grind through the long term. I think that's the evident, and that's evidenced by the compounding that's taken place in Warren Buffett's life. If you've been able, if you, he's like 95 years old right now, uh, 90, 94, 95. The amount of money that he's made since he's 50, um, between now, between 50 and 95, he's, I think he's 99% of his wealth or something, some crazy figure came 92. between 92% of his wealth. No, 92 came, years old. He's 92 years old. So a huge percentage of his wealth has come after he was 50 because he's been invested and been grinding through and had maintained discipline over a long period of time. And compounding over that long period of time is really, really works wonders. And he's, he's been able to do better than the market as well too over that period of time. So you get the sort of compounding of uh, time. And then if you've been able to do slightly better than the market's really worked out in his favor. Um, but I agree 100% with that being a superpower. I think I think about it from the perspective of short-term risk versus long-term risk. And so and when we're talking to people that say, look, I want to get uh, some money off the table, I want to go to cash or go to short-term bonds because of this potential event or that potential event, and I don't want to take the risk, and I think about risk on a spectrum of time, and uh, I, I agree that you know, so stopping the bleed or uh, moving from equities to fixed income or cash is essentially a short-term risk-averse move, but what are you sacrificing in the long run? You're sacrificing the compound effect, which is sort of that long-term risk. So you're going from, call it a whatever, like a 4% long-term return versus an 8% long-term return doesn't sound like a huge difference. But if you expand that out over 25, 30 years, it's uh, it's astronomical. And so I think risk... The other thing I think about, Doug, is like the, the short-term risks that exist as we perceive them today, because we're living in a day-to-day world and we're humans and the news cycle, et cetera. So, so a lot of times we don't even remember these sort of uh, these these events that would that in, that serve as like an impetus for people to sell. Like the one thing that jumps to mind recently that was like a big deal that I don't think people are going to really re- be talking about, and I've almost forgotten about it honestly as well too, is this whole debt ceiling dis- discussion. That was the, a part of the news cycle. I don't even remember what when that was. That it was, was probably, in June. That was early, uh, late May, early June. The other thing it was two months before that was uh, sort of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and you know the regional banking crisis and and you know what's going to happen the fallout of all of those issues. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's going to be there's there's twenty things a year that could you could point to and say that that's going to be the event. And maybe you, maybe you have that sort of somebody that's that hasn't experienced markets and you show them all of the major. Uh, you know, domestic and international issues that have occurred over the last 20 years and, and point to, you know, every single one of them, you could make a case for each one of those being uh, a major market and economic disruptor. And, uh, you know, what has the market done over that time frame? It's, um, you know, it's compounding that sort of that eight to 10% annualized return, despite all of this chaos. And despite, you know, the decade of 2000, 2010 being a lost decade in equities, uh, it's uh, it's one of those things that the long if you lengthen your time horizon, uh, your tolerance tolerance for risk uh, just increases because uh, equities over a long duration 
uh, the, the risk in equities goes down substantially. The positive results come through. Uh, the, this is a, the, the last component to this, which I think is a, a huge piece. Uh, it's not number seven. It says more concern for tomorrow is a financial superpower, and that's just a, an exercise in delayed gratification. Uh, really, the reason we have jobs is, is encouraging people to save and invest, and in doing so, what you're telling them to do is, is not to purchase something that sort of satisfies them today, uh, but it, it instead sort of delay that gratification for the future, whether it's covering college tuition for kids uh, or other any other future liability or saving for retirement and investing uh, and letting compound do the work over decades. That delayed gratification and concern for tomorrow, uh, in my opinion, is is maybe the superpower. Like we talked about last week, there's the Wall Street Journal did a profile of several individuals that have over $5 million and really sort of like the American dreams type story where a, a guy from the, that was a American airlines pilot ended up having be, being profiled in that and compound interest over a very long period of time. Like we just talked about in, in Warren Buffett's case can works on a massive scale in that case, but it can also work on a, a micro scale in the case of somebody who's a working professional pilot, attorney, doctor, or what have you, that um, saves up for a long period of time, invests right, and then they wake up and they have more money than than uh, you know ninety nine point nine percent of Americans that are featured in a Wall Street Journal article like that individual. The one thing I'll say that um, having this sort of attitude of delayed gratification that I see in practice is sometimes those individuals that have done this for decades and have accumulated ten plus million dollars or twenty million dollars or whatever because of this sort of diligence have a hard time shifting gears from that mentality that got them rich um, and and have more money than they've ever dreamed of to a point at which they can enjoy it. So I think it's a it, it's a it's a superpower. But this the other the other side of the equation is is that you need to have a superpower to uh, be able to shift gears at some point in time and to be able to enjoy that wealth because the same it's they're two distinct there's a lot of dis- distinct skill sets that exist in the uh, world of making money saving money uh, investing and then ultimately enjoying and uh, sometimes people have uh, one of those skills or two of those skills like people that that may make a you know a ton of money and they don't they spend it all so they have one of those skills Saving money and investing is another skill altogether. But as far as the delayed gratification, ultimately you want to be able to actually have the gratification and not continue to, to, to delay it until your death and have somebody else like your children or, or whoever is going to inherit that money have all of the gratification. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. So we'll wrap it up with that. Well, we hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, this is Laying Out Podcast. Give us a five star and share with your friends. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.
The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.